Hello, welcome to a very special episode of No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. My name is Chris Baker Dersh. I'm your producer and editor. Today is Featured the Podcaster Day. I'm really excited to bring you this chat that I had with Jim Zabo, who's the host of the Secondhand Stories podcast. Secondhand Stories is a fiction podcast that features short stories in all genres, 1,500 words, and more. And so they run the other end of the spectrum from where No Extra Words is. Jim and I decided we should get together, have a chat, hit record, and see what became of it. And we ended up talking about submissions and what editors really think of and do with them. Editor pet peeves, our favorite books that we're reading, a whole conversation about paying writers and monetization, passion projects, creativity, recording spaces, and all manner of delightfulness and podcaster nerdiness. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's been a couple months since Jim and I talked, so a few things you'll hear have changed here on No Extra Words, and I'm sure have changed over on Secondhand Stories as well. Here I am with Jim Zabo. My name is Jim Zabo. I'm a software engineer in my day job, and I make the Secondhand Stories podcast whenever I have free time. Uh, this podcast, we take stories that are between 1,500 and 6,000 words, although that uh, number is definitely flexible, and we put those stories together and do episodes every other week. Um, we don't really have any particular genres or anything that we accept. It's pretty much us, I think. All right. And my name is Chris Baker Dersh, and um, I describe myself as a librarian without a library because uh, I am a trained librarian and I currently work very, very, very part time as a librarian sub and have a three year old that I spend my days with. And I produce and edit the Flash Fiction podcast, No Extra Words. So we also take stories of any genre and type and piece them together into podcast episodes. Um, the only difference is that our stories are under 2,000 words, and most of them are under 1,000 words. I sometimes will sneak in a a story between 1,000 and 2,000, but most of them are under 1,000 words, and we've done stories. I think the shortest one that I've accepted to date was 40 wow. words. What's the longest? I broke my own rules once, and I did one. Um, it's an episode 20, and it's like... 2200 or something like that but i don't say that that often because then everyone will send longer things and think oh she wants the long no i really right. don't yeah how long so i know when i'm reading stories i'm really bad at it which like you would think that i would have gotten better by now but i'm just not really good at reading stories and it takes me probably like i'll have an hour of recording for maybe a story that ends up being 35 minutes I don't really practice that much beforehand. I just kind of go into, I'm like, you know, I know this is going to take me a couple takes, you know, some of these sentences I'm going to have to read over again. That's fine. I'll just deal with it in editing. And so it just takes me a lot longer than what the actual finished product ends up being. I don't know if that's the same with you, but. It totally is. It totally is. I don't practice either. Um, and there, for some reason, there are some stories that are just buggers and it, you can never really predict what it's going to be. It's not like it has complicated words. It's not, I think sometimes it's just, I'm tired and should just shut off the microphone and do a, a new take the next day or something. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes, you know, with some of these short stories, sometimes I just dash off one take and then it takes about, you know, if it's like a five or six minute story, it probably takes 20 minutes or so to edit and then it's ready to go. So it really just depends. I read somewhere that, if you're starting a podcast, you should plan on the recording taking about four times as long as your airtime. So if you're doing like mine is a half an hour show, then the just the recording and editing piece of it should take two hours, 
which hmm. I think is ambitious. Like, it's usually longer, yeah. but that's a good yep. ballpark, especially, you know, once you've been doing it for a while. And that doesn't include any of the other stuff. It doesn't include the planning or the scripting or the, right. you know, the social media posting or the reading submissions or any of that stuff. That's literally just recording and editing. Let's start by talking about why we started our show and why audio rather than doing some kind of literary journal. I My glib answer when anybody asks me why I started a podcast is because I didn't want to start a blog. And that isn't meant to be an insult to any of you bloggers out there. I love blogs. I just I had done that a couple of times over the course of my life and didn't really want to do it again, which is funny because now I get excited when I have time to blog. But I had read... so. I have always been somebody who went through writing frenzy phases and then would put notebooks away and not write for a long time. And I didn't like that about myself. I always wanted to be better about being consistent. And when I became a mom, it was so hard to fit in writing time when my son was an infant. Like I signed up for NaNoWriMo when he was six months old. And I swear, like I signed up and then he never slept again the whole month. It was nuts. So, um, when he was about a year, I signed up for Camp NaNoWriMo, which is sort of a... So NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month, and Camp NaNoWriMo is like a laid-back version of that. Rather than trying to write a novel in a month, you set your own word count goal, and it just kind of keeps you accountable. And I said, I'm going to write whatever I possibly can. So I set this really like low goal just to kind of get myself back into it. And I told myself I was going to write whatever I wanted. I was just not going to focus on trying to create a novel or create at anything. I was just going to scribble short stories. And what came out were these pieces of really short fiction. And when I thought back, I'm like, it's kind of always what I've written when I let myself just go. And I didn't know that it had a name. So I started looking for what it was called. And I discovered this whole wonderful thing called flash fiction, which made me feel awesome and less crazy because it was something somebody had done before. And at the same time, I was reading Poets and Writers Weekly. And one of the pieces of advice from one of the editors was to put something out in the world every day or every week when you're first writing. You just start a blog, just start publishing stuff just to get yourself in the habit. And I said, well, I don't want a blog. But I had been looking for, since I had discovered what flash fiction was, I had been looking for some to listen to and had discovered they're really, I love podcasts and there really wasn't a lot of podcasts in flash fiction. And I thought, well, I could start one. And the vision was to do everybody else's writing and then throw in a piece of my own every couple of months and just practice getting work out in the world every week. And that's what I did. Do you feature some of your own stories in No Extra Words? Very rarely, like not as often as I think I originally wanted to. The first three episodes are all me, and mm-hmm. I sometimes think about taking them down, honestly, because <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like it's like having rough drafts up there. Like your first couple of podcast episodes are not your best work, but right. um, nowadays, like I did. I I do my own. I have a serialized um, Christmas story that I've done twice now. And I think the last time I did one of my own short stories, I did a special in March um, that was released just on Twitter to celebrate getting a thousand Twitter followers. And then we put it out afterwards. But um, I did one of my own short stories then. And I would say probably every like three, four, maybe five months, I do something of mine. Not very often. Cool. Yeah. So we... We got started, uh, the story I like to tell, and it's not a fictional story, it's a true story. I was driving, I was like starting a long drive, and I was stuck in a lot of traffic, and I was flipping through the radio stations, and I you know, didn't want to listen to music, I didn't want to listen to like talk radio or the news or anything, 
And I realized that I was really looking for someone to tell me a story. Like I just wanted to hear some fiction. And then afterwards, when I started looking around, I didn't, I didn't really see any fiction podcasts. For some reason, I didn't find yours, which I think was out at the time. And, um, I started talking with one of my friends who was an English major in college. I have no writing background. I have no English background, really. Like this was just something that I kind of wanted to do. And so I started brainstorming with her and we just kind of came up with, with what we wanted to do. And I think it was almost a year later when we actually got started. And I think I more came at it like I knew that I wanted it to be a podcast from the beginning because I was looking for some sort of radio fiction. Um, as a consumer, I wanted to, uh, to find something like that. So I took a lot of, you know, you're, you were talking about how you wanted to produce some writing every week or, you know, just have some deadlines. And that was really key for me. I watched some videos from Ira Glass. I think he's got some videos that were up on transom.org and they're they're on YouTube too. And he was basically like, he gave a lot of really good advice. He said, you know, you need to set deadlines for yourself. You need to make sure that you're doing the work that you want to be doing and setting deadlines is how you're going to get there. And also the thing that he said that really I think has helped me a lot is he said the reason that you're getting into whatever this creative work is is because you have good taste. And so what you produce is not going to be as good as what you're listening to because you just started out doing it. Like there's no way that what you make is going to meet your tastes right away because, you know, you haven't been doing it for that long. So that that really helped me through the beginning, you know, just – getting my feet wet and kind of just being comfortable with, you know, putting something out there that I know probably could have been better, but it, it just was what it was. That same video was really important to me early on as well. Like I know, I know exactly the video you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I use Ira Glass as an example sometimes when I'm hard, you know, we're all hard on our, the sound of our own voices and how we sound. And, you know, Ira Glass is one of the most famous radio personalities in America and doesn't really have a voice for radio. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I swear I had this American life on the radio last weekend and Ira Glass said like and, you know, and, um, three times in the same 10 seconds and then ended with something like and moving on right now or something like that like it's not good radio really yeah. but it's Ira Glass and so you don't care and so it's one of those I use it sometimes to let to get myself off the hook when I feel like I am not sounding like I want to yeah what kind of podcast did you listen to before you started no extra words like what were you into that's a great question because I can't even remember because my podcast listening has changed so much since I started doing it because I learned more about indie podcasts but mm-hmm. I when my son was teeny tiny and, um, you know, I was breastfeeding all night, I know I listened to a lot of NPR shows, like a lot of This American Life, a lot of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. There's this show out of Seattle that used to be uh, a radio show and they turned it into a podcast. And I can't even remember what it's called right now. It's like Too Beautiful to Something. And it's an NPR guy who hosted it. And it's just pop culture and dumb and brainless. And that was really helpful to me when I was a new mom. I listened to that one a lot. And so... Um, since I've been podcasting myself, I have discovered more indie podcasts, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, even somebody like Dan Carlin or somebody like that, who's pretty big in the world, but doesn't really have a, a radio station behind him. And then some smaller ones too. So my listening has broadened, but, um, I think a lot of people get into it via NPR and I think I was probably one of those. Yeah, I definitely, I don't remember what the first 
honestly, the first podcast I might have really listened to and gotten into was Serial. And it wasn't like on my own volition. It was one of my friends in college was like, hey, there's this really awesome podcast out there. And I was like, what's a podcast? And um, it was Serial. And she just got me really into it. And then from there, I think I found This American Life. And I mostly just listened to more of the popular podcasts. But another one that's they're they're mostly I would say the ones that I listen to are mostly story based but mm-hmm. more nonfiction stories just because that's kind of what's out there like S Town and This American Life. Um I really like Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People with Chris Gethard. I don't know if you've heard of that one but um that I've was part of it I haven't listened. That was featured on This American Life and it's more just there's a caller there's like the host and somebody calls in and they just talk anonymously about, you know, the host just gets them to talk about their life pretty much. And it's, it's really interesting. That's cool. Um, I read an article a couple of weeks ago about podcasts as literary nonfiction, which I thought was a really cool way of putting it because I think a lot of the popular ones out there, you, you don't think of them that way. You don't call them that, but that's really what they are. They mm-hmm. are essays. They are um, one of my favorites that I recommend to everybody. It started as an indie podcast and has been kind of taken on by our local NPR station here. It's called How to Be a Girl. Mm-hmm. And it's a mom of, I think when she started the show, her daughter was little five or six um and transgender and so it was her story of being a parent to a transgender child and her her evolution and how she came to terms with that and how she came to deal with that and you know very much storytelling but it is it's very it's very memoirish it's very literary nonfictionish. it's really cool so yeah a lot of the i don't know if you've listened to it but um you know s-town has been really in the news a lot lately and i think they keep describing that as like very novel, like, like the first season of serial they said was very TV show, like, and they tried to make this more like a novel. And I, I can see it a little bit for sure. One of the reasons that this could be one of the reasons that I wanted to go into audio as opposed to something else, but I think you have to write stories differently for audio than you do for paper, books, magazines, whatever. And I think it's interesting to see whether people get that when they submit. I don't, I don't know if I want to say it like that, but you know, there are certain things that work really well on the page that don't work as well when you're saying them or when you're listening to them. And I think that's, um, that's just an interesting take on audio. And I think having fiction in an audio format gives writers a different way to express themselves than they might've done before, or maybe a new challenge that, um, that they wouldn't have otherwise taken. Absolutely. I do not really do a lot of editing of the stories that I accept. Um, I kind of sort of take them as is or don't take them, mostly because I don't have time. I don't have time to go through and really put the editing time into them. So if they're not ready to go, they won't take them. You know, if there's a typo or a word that just sounds weird, I'll just email that author super quick and say, hey, is it okay if I say this instead? But yeah. one of the things that I find is when authors read themselves. I would say probably less than a quarter of my authors read themselves, but they always have that option. And when they do, I find that they change their own work. Because they'll say to me, they'll say, I started reading it and that word just didn't come out right. And is it okay with you if I, and I'm thinking, yeah, I, I completely understand because that's a lot of what I spend my editing time doing is as I'm reading a story, I, my, I will put words in the order that comes out the most clearly. And I will have to glance back and say, oh, no, that's not the way it's written. So I will go back and, <laughs> and fix it. But it does, it 
it sounds differently and it flows differently when you read it as opposed to and I'm someone who came late to the world of audiobooks. I mm-hmm. used to rebel against audiobooks a lot, and I think it's because it required a degree of focus that I wasn't used to giving radio or other things. But as a as an older person, I find audiobooks are a lot more interesting than they used to be, and they are. They are, they have to be meticulous because it sounds different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I'm exactly the same way as you in terms of like if the author is reading their own story, I'm not as picky about their edits like i will send back i i edit everything that i send back and sometimes there are no edits needed but i at least review the the story again for edits and if the if the author is reading their own story i don't really mind if they don't make all the changes because i know when they read out loud they will they'll figure it out like if it's wrong they'll change it and they'll know that okay this actually does work better so i think that like writing for an audio show also helps you in that respect because reading out loud is probably one of the best forms of editing. I've seen that from a couple of different people and just like from my own experience, I know that it's really, really helpful, really powerful. And I actually, as a writer, I'm going to let you into my deep, dark secret. I have often drafted work out loud. Like that is something I have done for as long as I can remember is tell myself stories like standing in the shower, even not Mm -hmm. even necessarily recording them for transcribing, but even just playing with early drafts, what characters sound like. And, you know, I, if you live with me, you will think I am a crazy person because I talk to myself (laughs) all the time. And that's, that's what I'm doing is I'm testing out storylines out loud to see how they sound and to see how characters sound before they ever hit paper. I have done that since my sister used to refer to them as my bathroom stories when I was like five and six years old because I have done that for that long. <laughs> That's my That's secret awesome. that I'm, I'm sharing with you now. This is something I always am interested to know if I feel through this. What do you call your show when, like, I always describe it as two parts literary journal and one part podcast, but depending on who I'm talking to, like, if I'm talking to other podcasters, yeah, I'm totally a producer and I totally have a podcast. If I'm talking to other, like, literary journal editors, it's like, oh, yeah, it's an audio literary journal and I'm the editor. So how do you think <laughs> of your show? Uh, I pretty much just call it a fiction podcast. Um, I, I don't really get in, in much more complicated than that. And in terms, I don't know if if this was part of the question, but in terms of my own role, like I just say that I'm the host or that I make the podcast because I I do have uh, what I call my co-producer. She's the one that that helps start the podcast and she more or less runs like the social media accounts and um, she's really good with like graphic design and stuff. So she makes, um, we have usually a new graphic for each episode. So she makes all those. but otherwise, like, I, I do the rest of it. I don't know if that was part of the question or not. But, um, yeah, I pretty cool. much just say it's a fiction podcast. And I, I I honestly don't talk about it with too many people. Like, obviously, my friends know, my family knows that I make this. But um, we did an article for a website called Bookster. That's B-O-K-S-T-R. They're kind of like a Goodreads sort of service where... They, you know, you put in the books that you've read and the books you want to read and they give you recommendations and stuff and they, they have content too. But, um, like that was the first time that I was really talking about this with a stranger. Like I've pretty much only ever talked about the podcast with like people who already know that I'm doing it. So we, we talked a little bit about submissions. What do you look for in submissions and what do writers do that make themselves stand out either for good or for bad? Yeah. So 
I wish I had like a concrete criteria that I would say, you know, if the story is like this, if it has this, then I will take it. But most of the time, it's just whether or not it speaks to me. And I'm usually the only one reading the story. So it kind of is, you know, whether I like it or not. And what I'll do, I'm, I'm pretty bad at this and I'm working on it, but, um, but it's, it's a work in progress. I pretty much, I think I have like, 90 submissions that I haven't responded to yet that I've gotten like as far back as last October, maybe. And I just kind of hold on to, to them for a long time because I'm not sure, like most of them are probably good enough, but only if I'm able to pair them with another story of a similar theme or, um, you know, just another story that's going to go well in the episode. So um, I definitely hold on to stories for too long, but the ones that are really good, they're, you know, very relatable and they read really easy. You know, I, they don't look like, uh, I have to make a lot of edits to them and how you can stand out for me. I was thinking about this last night. I think I'm gullible isn't the right word, but as I'm reading a story, I'm not very good at like predicting what's going to happen in the future. Like, you know, how the story is going to end or anything. So if you can surprise me, that's a pretty good and easy way to, get me into the story and standing out in a bad way is just not proofreading, which you'd be surprised. I'm, you wouldn't be surprised, but I think maybe our listeners would be surprised at how many submissions we get that are just not polished. What about for you? Um, yeah, not polished. Clearly you haven't read over it. Um, I had one last night from a woman who clearly English is not her first language, which is totally and completely fine. And I get great Mm -hmm. stories from writers who English is not their first language. And I think, unfortunately, if you're not a native speaker, your editing is going to be harder for you to do, but you have to do it. And so, you know, speaking as someone who is a native speaker, I feel like that outs my privilege a little bit, but it's like, I can't, I can't share it in its current form. I just can't. And like I say, I don't have the time to go through and line edit it for you to make it look like it needs to look. So Yeah, there's, there's like a certain level of editing that I think I might do a little bit more editing than it sounds like you do, but I won't go that far. Like if the whole thing needs to be reworked, I, I just can't do that. I had a question for you about your process. Like, you know, I just mentioned I have a bunch of submissions that I haven't responded to yet. How, how do you deal with that? Do you try to respond right away and do you just like work in, you know, if you know that a story is really good, you'll just hold on to it until you have other stories that go with it. Um, how do you like, what's your planning process? Like I have finally, I think developed a process that works for me. Cause in the early days I would say yes. And then I would sort the stories that I'd said yes to into a file. And then later I would look at them and try to match them together. Mm-hmm. And I was always afraid that I would lose somebody or that somebody would get buried at the bottom. And that happened a couple of times. And, yeah. um, so what I do now is I have a spreadsheet that has all the dates of all the upcoming episodes And when I'm reading, I read submissions in batches. So I read a batch last night of 15 and I do a first read on them because it's like you, it's usually just me doing the reading, which I know is not correct in the world of literary journals. Right. You know, that is what it is, but it's me. And so I do a first read on everything and then the stories all get sorted. They're either no, maybe, or probably. Mm Mm-hmm. The no's are those badly edited. A lot of my, one of my pet peeves is the 
people who are have have not learned the show don't tell yet and so there's just a whole bunch of exposition <laughs> which especially in flash fiction you don't have a lot of space to work with right. so you got to get there otherwise it's not going to work and so those are the no's and then the maybes and probablys i will do a word count on them i have a i think it's wordcounter.net that i use that's free um do a word count on them so that I know what length I'm looking at. And then I have my spreadsheet open and I will look, especially at the probablys, if they fit into a slot that's open, because things are already scheduled from previous readings of submissions. So mm-hmm. I have I know where the spots are. So I'll be looking and see if they fit, especially those probablys, but see if some of those maybes fit in and do that first with my maybes and probably just fit them where they look like there's an opening. And then once that process is done, anything that's really good, anything that I don't want to let go of, anything that I think is really good, but I don't have a place to put it yet, I will schedule it for the next open episode. That makes sense. So like when I was reading last night, I had one that fell in that category. It didn't fit anywhere that I had a current opening, but I liked it and I knew it was going to pair well with something. So I would just slot it into the next open episode. And I'm usually working at least three or four months in advance. So that next open episode is usually a ways away. So just slot it in there and then the gods of fate will provide something that will go with it. (laughs) And some things pair better than other things. Like some things are a bit of a stretch um, because there are some things, like there are some days where I read a submission. I'm like, oh, that is the one that goes in this spot that I have right here. And sometimes it's like that one could go there. It probably fits better here. It's too long to go over there, but I'll slot it in here. It'll be fine. That's more typical. Um, How did you, how did you get so far ahead? Did you have a lot of episodes prepared when you first started or... Have you just God, been no. able to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, like I say, the first three episodes were all me. And um, then I, as I am wont to do, I broke format for like episode four or five or something. You, you would think you would establish a rhythm before you would break format, but I didn't. And so I did something entirely different. And then... I quickly discovered in the early days that people were not going to come to me. I was going to have to go to them. And so I went out and did some reading and, sa- and found some flash fiction I liked and contacted authors to see if I could use their stories. That's something I did through about episode seven or eight. I think one of those, I also, I needed an episode fast because I had a technical problem. And so I mm-hmm. went and used stories from the public domain. Like I, you know, did a lot of that kind of floundering because I, you planned for a year. I planned for about four weeks. So I tend to jump first and ask questions later. Well, I, just to clarify, I, I was planning out the podcast for a year. I, when I released the first episode, I just had that first episode and I'm like still, like I have the next two episodes planned out, maybe the next three, but like they're just planned out. I don't have the recordings done or anything. And I'm like constantly, we release Thursday morning, Wednesday night, um, up until midnight or later finishing the episode, like every single episode. So I was looking for to see if you had any wisdom on how to get ahead. I plan way ahead. I don't record way ahead. I always yeah. have big dreams of recording way ahead. Like I know what the stories are going to be. You know, we're recording this on a Saturday morning. I release every other Friday. This is is my release week. And so I know what the stories are going to be. And one of them is being read by an author. And so I already have the recording of it because those come in earlier. Mm -hmm. I I make deadlines for the authors earlier than I make my own. (laughs) Um, And so, like, that that piece is done. But I haven't started recording any of those stories. I know what they're going to be. They're scheduled. But in terms of the recording, I am also tending to be putting it together the couple of days before it goes out. The only reason I'm able to plan so far 
far ahead is because I get great submissions, and so I'm able to put them on the calendar and schedule them. But yeah, it does not mean that I am prepared in terms of the recording. I And I will sometimes do crazy things to myself. Like, I released an opening day of baseball episode, mm-hmm. so it had to be out on April 2nd. And I had one that went out on March 31st, which are, was our regular release date. And we were out of town until the 28th of March, and I had not started either of those before we got back. So I had, like, five <laughs> days in which I had to put out two episodes, like, from scratch. So, and some of the pieces, you know, I always use the same intro music. I always use the same closing music. I have some templates for if I'm going to do two stories back to back and I don't talk in the middle. Like, I have the technical pieces set aside where I know where those stories go in my recording software. And, like, I figured some of that stuff out after two years of doing this. But, you know, recording is recording and it's going to take the time it's going to take. So... Yeah, I don't I don't have any great advice for how to be prepared and ahead because I'm not prepared and ahead. But I, I like planning things. I think part of my brain is very satisfied by the planning process. And now like I know that we're all in the same boat, we're all doing it the night before, so that, that makes me feel a little better too. I think I put on Twitter a couple weeks ago, I am a podcaster and the mother of a toddler, which is code language for I don't sleep. Right. <laughs> when I started doing this, I had I, we were in kind of a golden age of naps, and so my son would sleep an hour, hour and a half almost every afternoon, and so I had this automatic window of time in which to work, and mm-hmm. that was when I was doing weekly shows, and it was great because I could keep up and I could plan and I could do everything, and that no longer happens in my world. So yeah. my work schedule, so to speak, has changed, and so the time that I have to devote to this is the midnight hours now. And one of the things that has helped me is I also take reprints. I know a lot of literary journals don't, but I will totally take something that's been published elsewhere. My theory on that is that it doesn't affect me as much as it does a magazine publisher because it is such a different format that it doesn't matter if it's been printed somewhere before, it's never been read aloud somewhere before. So I don't think I'm competing with the same audience in the way that magazines are. So that's something that's helped me get the word out about submissions is I've been featured on a couple of lists people will make of places to send your work. I have one contributor, he just cracks me up because I I literally think he's going through his back catalog of everything that he's ever published and just (laughs) sending his stories to me. And some of them I take and some of them I don't. And that's, I don't have any problem with that because what he does, and this is just good manners, is he sends them one at a time. So he'll send one and then when he hears back from me yes or no then like i i know within 48 hours i'm gonna see another one which is awesome <laughs> <laughs> like no problem there when we first started we decided to not do reprints i don't remember exactly why i don't know if there was like we were pretty afraid of like copyright issues and like permissions and all that stuff and i still don't know if those are totally worked out but they've been working so far so i think that was behind our decision to not accept reprints but i think at this point um, there's nothing stopping us from doing it. We just haven't. When we first started, we were really hankering for submissions. And now, like I said, I have a pile of like 90 that I haven't responded to. Some of which I'm like hoping this weekend to edit and respond to. And I think that's another reason that I take longer than I should to respond is that I know that I have to edit the stories. And that's just like, it doesn't take that long, but it's just, it's like, oh, I have to edit it before I send it back. Cause I always like to, say, hey, I'd like to accept it, but these are, you know, this is kind of um, what I'd like you to to fix about it before we run it. 
And that's one of the reasons I have had to really streamline what I say and don't say. Because there are days, like, I'm, I was a school librarian, so I'm kind of a teacher by training. And so there are days I really want to help. And I really, I see a submission, and I know they're getting close, and I know they need another rewrite, and I know some things they could do to make it better. And I have to back away, because I'm like, I do not have the time to go back and forth with this person and tell them what they're doing wrong and kind of hold their hand. I wish I did, but I don't. Mm-hmm. And it's going to have to be just yes or no, and then move on. And... I do not send personalized rejections very often. Every now and then, especially if it's a contributor that I know that I've worked with in the past, and I really want to tell them, hey, you really did land in the maybe pile. This was really cool, but it's just quirky enough that I really didn't have a place for it. Then I will kind of add that personal touch. But most of the time, it's just a blank, thank you for considering us. You know, you, you're you awesome, and I hope you will think of us again. That's all kind of pretty generic, and I have to just make myself cut and paste that response and just send it and move on. One of my pet peeves in submissions that drives me crazy is people who don't read the directions drives me nuts (laughs) i got a submission last night for a children's book like a children's picture book i don't know what they (laughs) think i want to do with that but one of my like things that i'm a hard ass about is i don't open attachments and part of that is just the way my workflow works the way i deal with these once they've been accepted can't deal with attachments it has to be in the email and my the stories i said are really short and so that's not a problem you can just cut and paste people who send me attachments, drive me bonkers. It's just like, I I get that you don't understand why I have yeah. to work this way. I get that you have your manuscript formatted and beautiful and want me to see it. I understand all of that, but you're not running this. I deal with a lot of submissions. I, you know, I read three weeks worth of submissions last night. It was 15 once I had sorted through the junk, like 15 things I actually read. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, not huge compared to what other publications get, but it's a lot. And I don't have time to deal with you if you don't read directions. My pet peeve for relating to that is people who don't give me the word count. It's clearly on our submissions, like, send us your word count, because the only thing, like, we try to fit stories in a theme, and we try to make each episode about the same length, and we've been getting a little bit longer lately, but I know more or less how many words make how many minutes worth of show. So if I don't know how many words a story is, and maybe I'll check out that word counter website that you mentioned, but our format, we want PDFs, we want attachments, so it's not very easy to get a word count from a PDF. Like it's an extra step that I don't want to have to do. That's a pet peeve of mine for sure. I always say to people, if you want to get published, if you want to be on somebody's podcast and get interviewed, if you want to, whatever, if you want your voice out there, don't be the guy who's hard to deal with. Don't be Mm -hmm. the one. And I have someone in mind who's a very talented writer who's been on my show. But when I see emails from him, something inside me goes, Oh, (laughs) Like, I have to deal with this now. Like, it might be good. It might be worth my time. It might be really awesome. But I'm going to have to go back and forth with him. And there's going to, this is going to be not simple. Like, there's going to be a thing that I'm going to have to do. And so I don't share as much of his work as I probably would if he were somebody who would just do what we do. Don't be that guy. Mm-hmm. And don't be the one who didn't read the directions the first time because I'm human and I remember your name. And when you resend it with, <laughs> you know, doing what I told you to do, then I'll totally read it. But in my head, I'm thinking of you as the guy who doesn't follow directions. Don't be that right. guy. <laughs> and so I, I think what writers forget sometimes is people who read submissions are writers too. We also submit. We also know how hard this process is. We totally get it. I know as a writer, it's super frustrating that everybody wants different things and you want a PDF and I want the plain text and it's annoying, but you have no idea until you've done it how what a pain it is to read submissions if they don't all come to you the same way right so i've 
mentioned probably too many times how I have a large pile of submissions that I haven't responded to yet. You dream about them, don't you? Like, they, they haunt your nightmares. <laughs> they really do. Like, some stories that I got, like, back in, I don't even remember when I got some of these, but I'm just like, I know I still have that in the pile. I need to respond to it, but I just haven't done it yet. Because I take so long to respond to them, I make, I have a Google Doc of notes about each story. And so instead of having to say, you know, just based on the title, what was that story? Like, did I like that story? I, I make like a paragraph's worth of notes about the story. And that kind of also helps me when I do send responses back and send rejections back. I can say without too much trouble, like, hey, here's what I didn't like about the story. And, you know, not necessarily like this is what you should do next time, but just like, you know, here's why I'm probably, you know, here's why I'm not taking the story just so that they know. And most of the time they're appreciative. Sometimes they're not. And that's okay. There have been a couple of stories that have been, I don't want to say so bad, but there have been some stories that I haven't sent personal feedback on because there's just not a whole lot to say about it. But um, I do try to do that when I can, which isn't all the time, but spreadsheet might be easier, but I, it's a Google doc of just like the stories when I got them, who wrote them, the word count. That That's my way of like scheduling and organizing new episodes. I have which ones I have a little yes below the story. If I'm accepting it, I have a no, if I'm going to, if I know I'm rejecting it and then nothing, if I don't know, but it lets me go back and really remember what the story is without having to reread it, especially with having longer submissions. It That helps a lot. I have developed systems that make me have to work less, and that's really important. Because when I did that baseball episode, I didn't specify on the call for submissions for that one not to send attachments. And so people send attachments, and that's cool. That's on me. Um, but it just made the putting that episode together that much harder. Yeah, that makes sense. I like did this with the intent of getting organized, and it hasn't worked out completely as it should, but I'm not an inherently organized person. So like, I have an unread folder, and then I have a... like read and accepted folder, read and rejected, and then it just, like, trees all the way down. So there's, like, an edited, unedited, like, do I have the contract back, do I not, has it been recorded, all that jazz all the way down. And so it looks kind of complicated, but it just whatever works for you it makes sense to totally. me. So. And sometimes I, I have had moments where I, like, look at the, you know, it's that balancing act because I don't want to be too prepared because I don't want to be working mm-hmm. too far in advance. But I see this episode coming out of the corner of my eye. I'm like, it's done-ish, but it would be really great if I would have one more story to throw in there to just kind of put a red bow on it. And yeah. I'll be darned the number of times that story has just popped up, like, out of nowhere. It just <laughs> appears in the submissions folder, like, angels sing. Like, here is the thing that you <laughs> needed. Um, and then sometimes, you know, I what I do, the structure of my episodes is I do a story or two, and then I have a little kind of narration piece where I talk about the theme and what's on my mind today and what these stories say to me, and then I close with another story or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that middle part with me talking is a little bit more of a stretch than other times because I'm putting together stories that are a little more disparate and sometimes it's just like everything's gelling and it's awesome. Right. Yeah, when we first started we didn't have enough to really to do that at all. We didn't theme anything because we didn't have enough submissions but now that we've had more and we've been able to kind of just take some time with you know with responding to them and everything we've been able to theme things a little bit better and sometimes like I've planned out like I said, I planned out the next two, and I think I have a vague idea of what, like, three or four more episodes after that are going to be like, but they're not the best fit, all of them. So, so yeah, I'm always trying to trying to do that, too. 
And I name episodes last. That's my last step. Like, I know kind of how they go together, but I don't do a title of the episode until everything's recorded, and then I do a title last. Yeah, that makes sense. We we just use the titles of the stories that are in it, which we only have, like, two stories, maybe three, so that's a lot easier for us to do than it would be for you if you have four or five stories, so... Two or three is pretty normal for me, too. Um, oh, okay. My episodes have also gotten a little bit longer um, mm-hmm. as we've thrown more stuff in them, so probably three is a better average now. The most I've ever done on a standard episode is four. Um, occasionally, on, like, a special, I'll do a little bit more, but right. oftentimes some of them are poems or whatever, but... Yeah, you do. Um, so you do your writing spaces. You've, you've been doing the writing spaces segment on your show, which has been pretty cool. Do you want to do a little recording spaces right now with the two of us? Sure. That sounds like fun. I like that. Tell me where you're recording today. I am recording in my bedroom closet, which is where I've always recorded. I have the microphone is hanging down from one of those little plastic cubby kind of things that you put on the, it's on the top shelf of the, of the closet. The microphone is hanging between some clothes to kind of deaden. So the whole reason I'm in here is just to deaden the noise. It's the the room that has the softest walls, basically. And I'm kneeling on a body pillow. I used to record sitting down, but I realized that when I was sitting down, I was really hunched over, like hunched over my lungs, and I would be not out of breath, but it would be harder than it should have been. I wasn't really open. And so now, like kneeling, I can kind of sit, stand straight up and and work but it it's hard when like if i have a longer story where i'm in here for an hour like you know when i come out of it my knees are all checkerboarded up because the because of the pillow but and they sometimes they hurt a little bit too i probably can't do this when when i'm old but um yeah that's that's where i record Nice. I like it. That gives me a great image. I record in our downstairs basement bedroom, which I refer to as my office. Um, And it has been in a stage of reorganization since August. And it still is. So nothing is quite where I want it to be at this moment. Like I'm staring at a giant filing cabinet that I really want to find another place to put it because there's a window behind it that would allow a natural light if I could only move this thing somewhere. But things that don't have another place go in my office. And there's a bed around the corner somewhere that's going to be my son's bed when he gets a little bigger as a twin bed. Um, and there are baseball pennants on the walls and some stuffed animals on a shelf. And behind me is my family history wall with old family pictures. And my microphone, I have graduated to a two desk system. So in front of me, I have my computer all set up with everything. And then I have another desk to my right that's just empty. And that's where I can have paper and make notes. And there's a typewriter sitting there. I love typewriters. And so I actually have the microphone anchored to that desk, which is nice because it has a home. For a long time, my microphone was anchored to a typewriter. Like I have my mic on a mic stand and it was anchored to a typewriter because that was the only thing I had to attach it to. This room has 1980s wood paneling and a drop ceiling. It's super fancy. So in order to deaden the sound in here, it kind of doubles as my craft room, even though I don't craft anymore. So I've got like fabric and supplies and, you know, a couple like there's a there's a thing hanging on the wall that my mom quilted just to deaden the sound just a little bit, just so it doesn't sound weird and echoey in here. But it feels a little bit like a hovel. The point of redecorating it is so I didn't have to stare at the window because on afternoons when I would be recording, it would be bright and sunny and I couldn't open the blinds anyway. And so I wanted to like use my light differently. And so instead of staring at a window covered with a horrible shade, now I'm staring at this giant filing cabinet. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons I did writing spaces is because I 
am someone who's never had a lot of luck writing in the nice rooms that I've created for myself. Like I get myself a little desk area and then never sit in it. And I didn't know if I was alone in that. So I really wanted to know, like, where do other people write? Because I do a lot of my writing out somewhere in the world on a trip or outside or whatever. And I was just curious if I was the only one. So it's been... That's one of the nice things about being around for this long is I have this wonderful backlist of contributors and I can just send them all a mass email, which is what I did. And I said, everybody's welcome to participate. Just send a two minute recording of who you are and where you're writing. And I got, I think there are 17 total. So they're slowly being scheduled to air over the summer. I think we'll be done with them in September, just sharing their different spaces. I started doing segments on the show because I was getting bored. I kind of had a rhythm finally where I had figured out how to do this and what I needed to do to make it happen and, you know, was kind of turning out episodes and it was no longer the creative challenge that it had been, but I wanted to keep doing it. So it came down to, I can make this difference so it keeps me engaged and still keep doing it, or I can shut it down and do something else. And I wanted to keep the show going. And so I thought, what can I do to make it different and interesting? And one of the thoughts was, well, I can create little segments that I can throw in and among the short stories and writing spaces was the first one that came to my mind but there are others some of which i've done and some of which i might do i have a brainstorming list somewhere cool i've read stephen king's book on writing a couple times i think two or three times it's a great book i'm you've probably read it but if our listeners haven't read it, it's super 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 good can't recommend it enough um and what he says in there is that he bought him well, i don't remember what book it was after but he bought himself this like big mahogany desk in this room and he sat at it and he couldn't write a thing because it was just like, it was a super open room and everything. And he always talks about how he needs like basically a desk in the corner and like facing the wall. And that's the only way he can write where I've found, I don't, I don't do a whole lot of writing. Unfortunately, I'm one of those people that has a lot of ideas, but doesn't act on them very often. When I do write, I find that I'm most productive when I'm traveling alone. So if I'm like in an airport or on a train, that's, you know, I'm going to be on the train for a couple hours. That's the only real time that I can not make myself do it, but that's just when I'm most comfortable doing it, I guess. So that's interesting that you had that. And I think one of your um, recent contributors said that too, if I'm remembering correctly. And then with the new segments, I think that's really cool, really interesting. I've been thinking about that as well. Some are more work than others. The reason I did writing spaces first is because it was kind of the easiest. And I, like I say, tend to jump first and, and plan later. And so it was like I had this idea. I'm like, I want to air one of these in two weeks. So I'll send an email, mass email to all the writers on my backlist and see see who responds and see what happens. So um, mm-hmm. there are some that are going to require a little bit more logistical planning. I love that idea of getting a flash fiction author to write in response to your writing. That's really cool. But one of the segments actually came out of, I got a submission from a former contributor who wrote a story that had me in it. And they sent this to me and just said, you know, you don't have to use this, but just know that your show meant a lot to me. And this is something that I did. And if you ever want to record it where, you know, you do your voice and I do my voice, I'm in and I can do that. And I'm like, done. Like, you be the producer and you plan the segment. Like, and I I showed my husband the story and he looked at me. He's like, well, I guess they knew how to suck up to you. And I'm like, well, it was good. That was, (laughs) you know, like that was part of it is it was actually good. And it was sucking up to me. That's an interesting balance to strike. I had a, I don't often read. Most submissions come with some kind of cover introduction. Hi, my name is so-and-so. And I usually skip it 
Like, I honestly usually just skip right over it and just read the story, and I might go back and read it afterwards if I'm interested in the story. But this one happened to catch my eye because it started with, thank you for your dedication to this project. And I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. So I kept reading, and it was like, this guy had said, you know, I've caught a couple episodes, and I really like this one, and thank you for doing this, and it's, I think it's awesome you provide this platform, and have I buttered you up enough yet? And it was like, you know, <laughs> I probably would have taken the story anyway because I liked it, but it was not a probably, it was a maybe, and did the buttering up of me help a little bit? Probably. Would I recommend to other people doing it? Probably not, because it's going to annoy me. It's one of those things where, you know, you can only catch lightning in a bottle once. Like, you have to be the first person with that genius idea, and then I'm going to think it's cool. The next 12 people will be like, stop doing that. Like, I've seen that. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> And this is where we, in true podcaster fashion, had a little bit of trouble with the audio. And it's a shame because this is a part of the conversation I really wanted you, the listener, to hear. So I'm going to summarize it very quickly and then drop you back when the sound quality is better. We talked about paying writers. We both run non-paying markets. We both would love to pay writers, even if it was just a token. We would love to be able to give that to writers. And logistically, we can't. We don't make money off of this. Nobody pays for this. Any out-of-pocket costs associated with this come to us. And Jim talked about how he does survey his writers. And one of the pieces of feedback he asks for is the whole question around pay. You know, would they submit more or better if they were getting paid? Would they be willing to pay a submission fee if there was a chance that if work was accepted, they would get paid? And what he hears from writers is most of them say they prefer it this way. They prefer to not pay to submit and then it's okay if they don't get paid on the other end. There are some who, if the submission fee was very small, they would cough it up if it was a dollar or two. Um, and I said to him, I, as a writer myself, agree with that. That's something I would much, much rather submit to a non-paying market that doesn't charge me to submit than I would to pay a submission fee. One of the podcasters that I admire, who's a big wig at one of the podcasting companies, when he talks about podcasters getting paid for doing this, his advice to podcasters who want to make money podcasting is go take the money you're going to spend to make money on your podcast and put it on the horses at the track because your odds are better. One in eight of those horses is going to win. One in eight podcasts is not going to make money. It's much, much less than that. So unfortunately, the dynamics of creativity in this day and age is that there's not enough compensation for the product. And while we do believe people deserve it, we don't have it to give them. And we also talked about if we could start paying tomorrow, if each of us could start giving our writers honorariums starting tomorrow because we picked up a new sponsor or whatever, that would still be problematic because there are still contributors starting at episode one who got nothing. And their work is not any less valuable to this endeavor than the people from here forward. So figuring out what to do with the back catalog folks and wanting to also make sure in any compensation model we could possibly create to pay them would also be important. And we talked about what we really want writers to understand is that we get it, that we 100% get it, that we know you want to be paid, and that what we don't want, and I think this happens a lot, is for people to assume that because we're not offering money for the product, it means we don't value it. That's unfortunate that people feel that way. And I understand why they do. I totally do. We talked about the hours you guys work, you writers out there, I'm talking to you right now, are long and hard. Everybody's long and hard is the hours we work putting these podcasts together. And you should be compensated for your time. 
And the fact that you're not is really rough. And we do this for you, the writers. And we want you to know that. So that's kind of what we talked about in this segment. And we both are very passionate about this and have strong feelings about this, which makes me sorry that you're missing the great conversation that we had. But I'm going to drop you back into kind of the end of that piece and on to the end of this interview. In our author surveys, the whole reason I do those is because, and I tell them this, I'm doing this, like I'm making this podcast basically for the authors. Like originally, you know, I wanted to do this because this was something that I wanted to consume, but I'm not going to consume my own work. I don't want to listen to the sound of my voice for an hour every two weeks. (laughs) Um, So like I'm doing this for them and making money is not my top priority. It's never going to be my top priority. And if it was, then I would have wasted the last year and a half doing this. There's a quote by Ani DeFranco that I love that I use whenever I have a passion project. And it's just, um, I do it for the joy it brings because I am a joyful girl because the world owes us nothing and we owe each other the world. And I always love that because it just speaks to, I, I don't do it for money. I don't do it for recognition. I don't do it for notoriety. I do it because it's fun. I do it because it brings joy and I do it because it provides a voice to my writers. And I love my writers. I have made such good connections and I don't know most of them. I haven't met any of them in person except for the one person that I did go out to interview. But I feel like a lot of my contributors are my friends. Like, you know, we've had a number of repeat contributors who've come back two, three, four times. And when I see their names pop up in my email inbox, just saying hi, or, hey, I've got a new story for you. Or, you know, hey, I'm releasing a new book, you know, because they just, they just keep it in touch. And I love that. Like, I really think of a lot of our contributors as my my writer friends a twitter account called at advice to writers basically they um they tweet out quotes from famous authors about writing more or less than they do authors and they do screenwriters and they do musicians people who like basically do creative work but they mostly focus on authors so this quote is from arthur miller and it says don't be seduced into thinking that that which does not make a profit is without value And I think that totally describes my philosophy regarding secondhand stories. Even though I don't make a profit on this, it is totally with value. Like, I take a lot from this, and I hope that people who contribute to it and consume it get value out of it, too. One pet peeve of mine in writing, um, I'm really sick of seeing the present continuous tense. I actually had a conversation with um, one of my friends who was an English major in college, and she just... She has a lot of opinions about everything, so I wanted to to just see what she thought about it. But um, just for people who don't know what that is, I'll read a sentence that I made that I think sounds horrible. Um, I'd only experienced this once before when I'd been to the supermarket in Puerto Rico where the vegetables had been picked fresh that morning. There are three heads in there that just don't belong. Like, you can say, I only experienced this once before when I went to the supermarket where the vegetables were picked that morning and you can cut out, you know, that's three words, but especially in a show like yours where you have a lot fewer words to work with. And even in one like mine where the stories are going to be long, don't make them longer. It's kind of like that. Um, I think Thomas Jefferson said, why use, you know, don't use two words when one will suffice and other people have said similar things. So that's definitely a pet peeve of mine, just because if you're writing that way, the word had is going to come up in every single sentence in your paragraph or whatever it is that you're writing. And it's just, Reading that over and over and over again is, oh, it drives me crazy. 
And abrupt tense changes is something that is that I do. I catch myself doing a lot, um, and I will read overdrafts of mine. I'm like, what what tense <laughs> am I in? And I think part of it is my experience being a, a youth services librarian and reading a ton of YA books that all seem to be written mm-hmm. in present tense. Present tense is um, so hard for me. But again, edit, edit, edit. Like, I may write that way. It may come out that way. But you're not going to see it that way because I'm going to go back and exactly. I'm going to fix it. Um one of my biggest pet peeves in writing is the it's supposed to be a surprise ending that you see coming the it was all a dream or then I found out he was crazy or you know I think people do that a lot in short story and it's like that's not an interesting reveal it may have been interesting in the 1960s when it was a thing but it's not interesting featuring Chris in one episode can't feature or in one story can't feature in every story it's not gonna it's gonna get old exactly you can't be doing something sneaky if you've seen it before I think we covered all my other questions. The only one that I had left is, uh, what are you reading lately? I know a big part of writing is reading. And if you don't know that, then uh, speaking to our listeners, then you really need to start reading. Yes. Um, so what have you been reading lately besides the, the work? That's a great question to end with. Um, I just finally finished Maria Semple's Today Will Be Different. Um, I loved her first book just a ton and I had had her second book out from the library for a long time and I actually started it twice and finally realized I was going to have to like, I was going to like it if I actually sat down and read it. A lot of my reading is pretty distracted, a chapter here, a chapter there, because I do parent a toddler. Mm -hmm. And so that was one I had to sit down and be like, I'm going to read this. On the flip side of that, I finally gave myself permission to not read something that had been sitting. I had been tackling it chapter by chapter, and I it was called Nothing Daunted, and it was the kind of book I should love, and it was by a New Yorker editor. And I finally gave myself permission to be like, I just don't like this. And I'm finishing, I bought a book by one of our former contributors, mm-hmm. Eric Goodman, and he published a novel with a small press called Womb, a Novel in Utero, which was kind of fun, so I'm just finishing that. And I'm excited because just arrived in the mail. I tried to order this for about six different independent bookstores and everybody told me it was too expensive. So I finally bit the bullet and ordered it from the bad guys. <laughs> um, but I heard about this on a podcast like three months ago, Stephen Galliff's Brevity, the art and craft of writing mm. slash fiction. Um, and I think that's actually a longer title than it, because the way the cover is, is the title's been edited down. <laughs> so it's fewer words than it was when he, just the way the cover is designed. So it's cute. So that is my next thing to tackle. I don't read a ton of things on craft, but every now and then I need to pick up a book on craft. And that was one that seemed to speak to me. And my summertime reading goal is to reread Roald Dahl's Matilda because it's been entirely too long since I've read Matilda and it's time to read Matilda again. Cool. I do a lot of, I think you called it distracted reading where you do a chapter here, chapter there. Most of my reading gets done. I take, um, I take a train in the morning to work and so I'm, I have like 15 minutes where I can read going to work and coming home from work. And then I try to, you know, read a little bit before bed, but that doesn't always work out. So I started the stand. I started blood meridian. I started as I lay dying and it was just taking me too long to get into them. Like the stand had so many characters and blood meridian. I don't know if you've read any Cormac McCarthy, but his writing style is just so different that it, it really takes a lot of concentration for me. And for whatever reason, I, I just, I had trouble figuring out who was who and as I lay dying at the beginning. Um, and so I just put all of them down and I know that one day I will sit down and read all of them and I'm going to love all of them. But, um, I got the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz and it's been fantastic so far. Um, I'm only like 80 pages in, but I'm, I'm loving it. And before that I read, 
Summer Crossing by Truman Capote. It was my first Truman Capote book, and that was really good. It was like, I think that was his first book that he ever wrote, but it was never published until after his death, I think. They found it somewhere, um, but that was pretty good. And I read The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Um, I'd never read that before, but I've seen the movie hundreds of times. And it was really, like, it was very violent, but in terms of the plot, like, way more violent than the movie, which I kind of assumed but didn't know. And But I also really liked how simple it was. Like, the writing just was so easy and so simple. And I figured out that it was because I think those books were written for children, which I don't know what kind of the children those turned out to be. But, um, yeah, <laughs> well... Um, <laughs> I loved the Oz books when I was about 10 years old. Did you read all of them? Because they're like 14, right? There are more than that, because that was one of those series that got taken over and written by other people. But there are something like 12 or 14 that were written by him. And I have read all of them at least once. I was a voracious reader at that age. Yeah, so that, I mean, I it it was really, really good. Um, Yeah, that's, and I think next, I also got, when I got The Brief Wonder's Life of Oscar Wilde, I also got... um, all the light we cannot see, which I've been like staring at in bookstores every time I go, and I just haven't never never got it. But somebody got it for me, so I'm probably gonna read that next. I finally given myself permission to read books for grownups because, like I said, I was a youth services librarian for years, and I would rarely venture into the grown-up section. I read a ton, a ton of YA and some really mm-hmm. great middle grade stuff, and I still do. Like I still, I still love that stuff. I'm working on writing a picture book biography, so I've been reading a lot of picture book biographies, which is fun because I can read those to my child, and so we can yeah. interact with them together. But try to read as much from as many places as possible. Reading, my experience with reading is reading never hurts you as a writer, regardless of what kind it is or whether it's what I like to think of as book candy or if it's something a little, with a little more teeth to it. Mm -hmm. It always helps. Yeah, I definitely agree. My girlfriend's the same way too. She's a fourth grade teacher and she reads a lot of books like for fourth graders. She reads a lot of young adult stuff, but she's been trying to get some adult books in there too sometimes. Oh, and I always say to adults, if you're not reading YA, you're missing out. Like, honestly, if you want to know what movies are going to be out in two years, go read some YA books. I I worked in a library once where we moved the entire YA collection into a different section of the library. And I must have had six adults come out to me that first day and be like, where all the great new fiction come from? Where has that been hiding? I'm like, yeah, the signs aren't up yet that say teen. So I'm just going to let you live in um in denial for a little bit until you. Yeah. Yeah. She we went to a used book sale the other day and she found all the Divergent series books and she's going to make me read those pretty soon. I like I read Hunger Games. I obviously read Harry Potter, but. Um, I I didn't get to Diversion yet, so that's coming up soon, too. A YA book is the very first present I ever bought my husband. When we first started dating, I bought him a YA book. So this has been absolutely delightful. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you once again to Jim Zabo of Secondhand Stories, and thank you all for listening. I wanted to end on one piece of advice. If you've stuck around this long and heard this whole interview, I think there's a tiny chance that somewhere in the back of your brain, you've wondered if starting a podcast is for you. And since you stuck around to the end, I want to give you one piece of advice, which I'm stealing from my friends, the History Chicks, that they just gave on their show on their most recent Q&A answer. And that is this. If you start to Google, how do I start a podcast? There are a lot of people out there who will give you a thousand reasons why you shouldn't do it, first of all, or a very expensive course that you can take to teach you how. And you don't need either one of those things. Now, it's like anything else. There's a boutique service. If you want to pay extra for that launch program that's worth it to you, that's awesome. Do it. In fact, shoot me an email. I'll send you to a friend of mine who does a great job with that. That said, it's a boutique service and not everybody needs it. 
honestly, if you want to start a podcast, if you've got a story to tell, you can do it without thousands of dollars and without needing to have all the things that a lot of people will tell you you need to have, like a product to sell, an email list, a company backing you, a network, you name it. If you want to talk in the microphone and share your stories, you can do it. So I'm going to point you to two resources. Both of them are free. There's a lot of free stuff out of there. There's a lot of very talented podcasters who will share with you a bunch of information about what they do because they like the medium and they want to share it. The first is, as recommended by the History Tricks, Helen Zaltman. She's one of the old guard of podcasters. She's got a very simple five blog post series that tells you the basics of what you need to know to start. Just HelenZaltman.com slash podcasting. It'll be in the show notes. If you feel like you need a little bit more than that, which you might, if you start to read about editing and noise gate and compressors and think, oh my God, what have I done? Good news. Two of my favorite podcasting ladies in the entire known universe have a podcasting course, Podcasting 101, and it is free, completely and totally free. They do the very basics of everything, how to get started, what you need, basic setup, how to set yourself up for monetization if that's what you want to do, all that jazz. And I will link that in the show notes, but they are she- podcasts and their podcasting 101 course is free. So if you've ever thought about doing this, turning on your mic and sharing what you have to say, don't let the noise of this culture right now and all the talk about podcasting having a moment drown out what you want to tell the world. I love doing this and I'm really glad that two years ago I sat in a chair in my basement and hit record on my software Audacity, which by the way, I still use and by the way, is still free. However you're doing it today, get out there and tell your story, and I will see you guys in one week with a brand new episode of No Extra Words. <laughs>